Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Well, welcome back to Radio KBPV, and uh, welcome in particular to our Tombstone Tours of 2023. And uh, if you've been following the podcast, you know that through the spring and summer of this year, we've been presenting last year's uh, Tombstone Tours that we did at the Pioneer Cemetery here in Pincher Creek. And uh, you know that we've also been promoting... Um, what our plans were for this summer's tombstone tour which was not actually in a graveyard it was on the grounds of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village itself so uh, this naturally was a virtual tour not uh, exactly in a cemetery but uh, we had representations of uh, a selected local pioneers and uh, historical characters who made significant trailblazing contributions to our frontier settlement but who had passed away elsewhere. Uh, I am uh, speaking about this right now as a matter of introduction to our tombstone tours which of course will be episodic and will be divided into 16 episodes that you will hear on Radio KBPV every Saturday morning for the next 16 weeks or so. So that should keep you going through the fall. For our final series of readings, uh, we have moved the group over to the Northwest Mounted Police Horse Barn, the oldest known building in Pincher Creek, and home of uh, of the establishment of the Remount Farm. And so we're going to have a number of uh, readings that uh, relate to that uh, to that Northwest Mounted Police and the establishment of it. And our thirteenth reading tonight is a little bit of a special one to myself. Uh, this is presented by my son-in-law Devin McLeod. And as I am putting this together on September the tenth, two thousand and twenty-three, it is my daughter and. Devon's first wedding anniversary and I allude to that a little bit in my own introduction of Devon. Uh, we are going to be speaking to about Colonel James McLeod, uh, born 1836, died 1894, a very important figure in the history of Canada, not just Pincher Creek. He was the commissioner of the Northwest Mounted Police and a local rancher. And as uh, I have alluded, of course, Devon has a personal connection to Colonel McLeod, not so much in relation-wise, but of course, 
Devin is a member of the Clan MacLeod. So, in a sense, this is his ancestor that he will be speaking of. And here's Devin. So what we're going to do at this point is we're going to go to our uh, stop over here by the Northwest Mounted Police Barn. And uh, that's where we're going to have our presentations on the history of the Northwest Mounted Police and on John uh, Breckenridge who ran the coal mine at, at Lundbrook. So. As we're being seated, I'm just going to uh, take this away from Farley for a moment. Uh, no, you, just so nobody uh, probably haven't introduced my daughter Robin to you. She's been recording Farley and uh, the rest of you that have been doing your presentation so well tonight for our podcasts. A few years ago, she dragged this guy home. <laughs> and uh, last year they were married. Uh, almost, uh, we're almost upon their first anniversary. And it just so happens, you know, I've been all of my life and uh, all of hers, she's heard about the name McLeod, and she decided to choose a man named McLeod. <laughs> and anyway, this just uh, last spring, they finally got their honeymoon uh, together, and they went to, um, what's the name? Dunvegan. Dunvegan, and Devin actually signed his name as a member of the clan McLeod. So he is actually speaking to you, not necessarily as a direct descendant, but as a member of the clan speaking for one of the most famed members of that clan, Colonel James McLeod. In color. <laughs> James Farkas McLeod, 1836 to 1894. James Farkas McLeod was born September 25, 1836 at Drynock on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. To Martin and Jane Fry McLeod. Martin had been an officer in the British Army and served around the globe in India, Gunya, and in Canada supporting the Canadian mil milita against the American military in the War of 1812. He and his family suffered from disease while on military service in the tropics and Martin and Jane immigrated to Canada in 1845 to save their boys from that fate. They settled onto a farm at Richmond Hill, Ontario, north of Toronto, this is where the family gained a love for hunting and where the McLeods earned the friendship of the Ojibwa people. James would never lose his respect for the First Nations people, and while he couldn't know it at the time, that progressive attitude would be very fortunate in his future career. Martin had plans for James and enrolled him in Upper Canada College in 1845 at the age of nine. Family finances forced him to withdraw in 1848 when James did return to Upper Canada in 1851, he graduated with honors and aced his entrance exams for Queen's College in Kingston. James studied for a Bachelor of Arts in, the, in order to enter the field of law as Martin intended for him. Bored by the legal system, James asked to study engineering, but Martin was having none of it. James stayed in Queen's and obtained honors degrees in the classics and in philosophy but drug his feet in the law studies. It took two tries for James to get into the Osgood Hall Law Program in 1856 and articled with a lawyer. Typical of many young men on the Ontario border frontier where the co colonial government was wary, 
of the American border, James joined and drilled in his local mil militia, volunteered militia field battery of Kingston, and was commissioned a lieutenant in 1860. He passed the bar examinations and practiced law in Bowmanville, where he's serving in the mil mil milita. Militia. Militia. <laughs> where he rose to captain in 1863 and to major in 1866. Through the American Civil War and Finian raids of 1866, colonial sovereignty was threatened and James was on active service against threatened invasions from the United States. In 1870, James was a brigade major on the Red River expedition that was sent to Manitoba to quell the uprising of the Métis protesting the Rupert's land annexation of Western Canada. It was at, it was an adorous trek overland through the Northern Ontario where few roads existed. But James posting into the spring of 1871 had a very personal benefit. This was where he met Mary Isabel Driver, the plunky Métis daughter of Hudson's Bay trader, who'd risk her own life during the Red River uprising by smuggling letters from a Canadian government spy named Butler to the commander of the militia. Romance soon blossomed and they made plans to marry as James sought command of Fort Garry Garrison. But the promotion did not come through and he was ordered back to Ontario. In the intervening years, they, James and Mary corresponded regularly and those letters can be now read online through the Glenboy archives at the University of Calgary. As we know, James would return to the West as he rose in prominence in both the militia, militia and in the law, gaining the recognition of a family friend, Prime Minister. That was a handy connection because in the spring of 1873, James was commissioned a superintendent in the brand new Northwest Mounted Police, and the steamboat didn't run that fast enough to get him back to Fort Garry and, of course, Mary Driver. James and his brother officers, commanded by Commissioner George French, oversaw the arrival and training of the raw recruits that would become the very first Mounties. In December of 1873, J James led the force's first patrol and raided a whiskey trading operation at Lake Winnipeg. That success led French to appoint McLeod to his side as assistant commissioner with the military equivalent of lieutenant colonel which is why you often hear James McLeod referred to as Colonel. Then in the summer of 1874, it was off to lead the, the six troops or 318 men of the North West Mounted Police onto the endurance test of what is still called the Great March West. By October of 1874, various troops of the force had dispersed to either Fort Edmonton or returned to Manitoba under French. Due to poor performance of the badly chosen horse herd, after making contact with the Canadian government by telegraph at Fort Brenton, Montana, James McLeod took command of half of the force at Sweetgrass Hills and moved on to what was expected to be an armed attack and takeover of Fort Whoopup. James also at this time hired the half-blood, half-Scots scout known as Jerry Potts, who would not only advise the force and interrupt interrupt to the First Nations people, Jerry would soon become Jim McLeod's best friend. The attack did not materialize and Fort Whoopup was not at large enough to contain the 150 odd men that McLeod needed to quarter. At the suggestion of both Jerry and the whiskey trader merchant Charlie Conrad, 
The force moved onto the site further up the Old Man River, arriving in the middle of October 1874. With the assistance of Conrad's laborers and under the skill of carpenter William Gladstone, the force built what James had perfect right to name, the original Fort McLeod. Finally establishing permanently in the first Canadian government sovereign presence west of Winnipeg. McLeod's Scott heritage would also name another outpost, what a subordinate had tried to call Fort Brisbois, which would be renamed after the Gaelic name for his ancestral home on the Isle of Skye, Fort Calgary. And we will now never have to cheer for the Brisbois flames. <laughs> More importantly, James McLeod and Jerry Potts used their unique relationship to establish friendly relations among the various tribes of the Blackfoot Confederacy. He met the leaders like the Tail of Paniki, Red Crow of the Bloods, and Crowfoot of the Sisiki. James knew that the long reign of the First Nations was endangered, likening him it to the clearances in his native Scotland. But he had a job to do, and though the history of the Mounted Police and the First Nations is far from perfect, McLeod strived to set a tone of trust and respect. For that effort, James McLeod took his Blackfoot name, Stamix Okadin, the Bull's Head. McLeod unsuccessfully lobbied for protected status for the rapidly disappearing buffalo herds, and if to slap a label on the force, ordered the adoption of the Buffalo Head as the coat of arms for the mounted police. Trust would be needed to keep the Canadian prairie transition more peaceful than what it was happening. Just across the medicine line, with the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876, what many call the Custer Battle, the attitude took on a new meaning, as McLeod and Superintendent James Walsh would be called on to negotiate the presence and eventual return of Sitting Bull's fugitive Lakota bands from the Cypress Hills and Wood Mountain country. Back to America territory to face their bleak future, McLeod was also instrumental in negotiating the signature in terms of what is one of the most important documents in Alberta and Canada's history, Treaty No. 7, which ceded the greatest percentage of Blackfoot territory and would make possible the settlement of the prairies. McLeod was also a Mounties Mountie and did, not, did much to control mutiny and bad feelings among some poorly paid men. At one point, he and Jerry Potts and a small party rode through a blizzard to get to Helena so that the pay for the men could be drawn from the Montana bank. He also looked the other way when his troops jettisoned their silly pillbox hats for Stetson-style hats that would eventually become part of the uniform. He also recommended the switch of English saddles for California stock saddles and the adoption of the repeating Winchester rifle in place of the British single shots. One of his orders had great impact on where we're standing. Observation of the West March would eventually lead to James McLeod's choice of Pincher Creek as a detachment and farm in which to cultivate better breeding and conditioning of horse herd that was so vital to the Mounties. Before us stands the only remaining building from when, under McLeod's orders in 1878, 200 horses were driven over land to establish the nucleus of what is now our community. In 1876, James briefly left the force to accept a magistrate's position that didn't last long. 
George French resigned, leaving James McLeod as commissioner. Also in that year, he ended the long-distance relationship with Mary Driver, and they were married in Winnipeg. She moved in with him in their honeymoon home in the commander's cabin in Fort McLeod, built atop a bison's trail where the water ran through the living room when it rained. McLeod quipped, we're the only house in Canada that has this one. McLeod traveled often and hard in administrating the police and in visiting First Nations, for this made enemies in the federal government with his difficulties in dealing with inadequate budgets for both the force and with food supplies for distribution obligations to the First Nations. He shared his frustrations in a letter to Mary. They appear still to think that the poor creatures can gain their livelihood by hunting as if everyone didn't know that, that there is nothing for them to hunt. James' frustration led to his resignation as commissioner of the Northwest Mounted Police in September 1880 and accepted an appointment as the stipendary magistrate. This made him a traveling judge, which we'll talk about soon, but when you are frustrated with your job, the only place to go, Pincher Creek. James had always loved that area and started a ranch called Kyleekan. Among his architectural <laughs> pursuits, ironically, was to try to raise and sell horses to the Mounted Police, but he was outbid by the Stewart Ranch. But one critical guest that James and Mary hosted at their ranch was the Governor General, the Marquis of Lorne. On that occasion, Lorne not only named the Territory District of Alberta, but also extolled the virtues of ranching industry after his visit paying off innumerable benefits to us all here in Alberta cattle country. James and Mary had already started a family. Four daughters, Helen, the twins, Mary and Roma, and Jean, and the one son, Norman T. The children were cared for by Annie Sanders, who we are also meeting tonight. But now to his judgeship. James was, on, was only one of three or four magistrates in the entire Northwest Territories, responsible for the Bow River Ju Judicial District. He was mandated to hold court at least twice a year in the larger towns, such as Fort McLeod, Lethbridge, High River, Medicine Hat or Calgary. And that put James on the trail a lot. Calgary alone kept him very busy with the many legal disputes stemming from railroad matters and even had to often replace other judges that were dismissed. And he was responsible for both federal and territorial law. In 1887, McLeod was appointed to the first Supreme Court of the Northwest Territories as a judge for Southern Alberta. As a politician, he was a member of the Northwest Territories Council, and in 1887, he sought the elected seat for the very first parliamentary seat in Alberta. He lost the Conservative Party nomination to Donald W. Davis, who was ironically one of the whiskey traders that he was sent to Fort Woolup Fort to arrest with the Mounted Police. In 1890s, the judicial seat in Fort McLeod was moved to Calgary, in 1894, James was appointed to cover both northern and southern judicial districts. This forced his family to move to Calgary in order to perform both tax, tasks, the ravage, ravages of the blight, disease, the heavy travel, and predeclation for whiskey, both good and bad, finally took its toll on Colonel James McLeod, and he passed away 
on September 5, 1894 at 57 years old. He was buried in Calgary's Union Cemetery. James McLeod was a driving force on the early development of the Western Canada. His forceful but measured influence set the tone for the Northwest Mounted Police and rational policy used by the force in the early dealings with the First Nations and treaty talks. The absence of his voice of reason in the traditional transitional times was sorely missed, and it's not too far of a stretch to say that James McLeod would have held strong opposition to policies of residential schools and assimilation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K O O. T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.